Today's episode of The Shift We Shay is recorded on Gadigal land. We acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to the latest episode of The Shift with Shay. I'm Shay Candish, General Secretary of the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association and the host of this show. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by fellow nurse Vasiliski Betty Harvis, better known to me as Vix. Vix is what I would consider a triple threat. Uh, she's a researcher, an academic and a clinician and someone from my old days of nursing. Uh, Vix is currently the National Deputy Head of School for Nursing, um, predominantly responsible for Sydney at the Not- uh, Notre Dame University. Uh, so welcome to the show today, Vix. It's so great to have you. Thank you, Shay. It's a pleasure to be here and congratulations on your appointment. Oh, thank you. And same to you. Uh, Just before we started this podcast, I think you were sort of touching on how wonderful it is to celebrate um, the wins, I suppose, of one another in um, nursing. And you've very much done that for me, which I think is, uh, you know, I'm so grateful for. But um, for you, when you were appointed as dean, I think it's just so remarkable, um, you know, that these people that, you know, you work with in what is kind of the small world of nursing, um, you kind of watch them grow and rise to these different roles. Uh, and so to see you kind of having an um, a overarching sort of view of what's happening in the academic world, I think is remarkable. And I'm so keen to talk to you about it today. I'm excited to share the limelight with you and (laughs) on this journey together. (laughs) So look, let's start off at the beginning. Tell Mm. us a bit about, um, you know, how you got into nursing in the first place, because it was a bit of an unlikely path for you almost, wasn't it? Most definitely. So um, I have dyslexia and I, to be honest with everyone, I actually failed my HSC. And I say that because I now have five degrees, including a PhD. So... (laughs) Anything is possible. I, I, I you know, and, and, and the importance of just enduring and, and keep pressing forward. But I actually applied for university. And uh, in those days through UAC, you had to code the letters. And I ended up putting down the code for nursing at MacArthur, which was flipped to the code for mechanical engineering at UNSW. And I ended up getting this Uh, letter of offer to study nursing bachelor of nursing at MacArthur which is now Western Sydney University and in my um, teenage arrogance I actually rang UAC up and told them they'd made a mistake and then I and they were very kind and, and gentle with me and said no no you you've been offered nursing and then I drove all the way to Lidcombe to the head office and asked to meet with them and they pulled the paper and I noticed that I'd actually filled in the application incorrectly. So I thought, look, for me, education empowers one to come out of poverty. And I was from a working class family and I thought the university will give me an opportunity to not only uh, further my education, but also become financially independent and then provide opportunities for me Um, just to increase access to other services. And so I went to the University of Western Sydney and two weeks in, they sent us out on placement. And I grew up in a tiny suburb called Eld, which is actually one of the highest, has the highest rates of uh, Greek Australians residing there. And 
when I grew up was very, very working class as opposed to now where it's a lot of Audi drivers and McMansions. But when I grew up, it was very working class and they sent me to Bowel Hospital and that was over like a two hour journey from my home. And I was, and two things happened to me on that placement. And that actually made me realize the importance of advocating for pe people in, in need, uh, advocating for people uh, less fortunate, and also realizing as a 17 year old how my actions had consequences for others. And it made me continue with my nursing degree. I, I graduated from nursing in 1996 and got into the new grad program at Liverpool Hospital in the coronary care unit. And then I was fortunate enough to be transferred to the intensive care unit. And I remained in intensive care nurse for about 15 years until I went to emergency. And that's where you and I met um, in emergency at Campbelltown. But early in my career as a registered nurse, going from you know, being a new grad first year out at 21 years of age, and then realizing again, the impact of me as a nurse and the outcomes of patients, healthcare, well-being, safety was in my hands. That was quite overwhelming for me. And I realized for me to be safe in my practice, I needed to have the knowledge because I didn't have the experience. And so I went back to uni and I did my master's in clinical practice at UTS. And so by the age of 24, I, I was undertaking my master's. No, sorry, it was about 23. And then when I was 24, I, I was working in the ICU at Liverpool and I was team leader of a major trauma centre and I'd worked under the care of Professor Hillman. And Prof Hillman is actually the gentleman who invented the medical emergency team. So, wow. yeah, so we were under his, I guess, guidance and leadership. And what we were taught at Liverpool was the importance of not relying on machines and equipment to do the role of the nurse, but rather look at your own physical assessment and your communication with the patient. And the answers are there in front of you. You just use the, you know, the monitors to, I guess, confirm what your assessment has already said to you. So I became very, I'd like to believe I became very skilled and competent in being able to physically assess patients and prevent deterioration. And that's where the proactive aspect of nursing came into, I guess, my life, because I realized that you could be a nurse where you just monitored a patient and got them through the night, or you could actually take an active involvement in the care of your patient by preventing deterioration and being proactive in your care. And Wow. Yeah. yeah, and that actually requires the ability to be able to reflect and critically think and evaluate and provide a rationale for what you're doing rather than proceeding blindly. And it was through my time in ICU that I then became interested in research. Mm -hmm. And that's where I then entered academia. And I, I was surprise, surprise, circle of life. I went back to Western Sydney as an academic yeah, and I think that's when I kind of connected with you. Yeah. And I can say uh, you were very skilled having worked alongside you, um, but I can't believe that you thought you wanted to be a mechanic. That, that's, <laughs> you know, uh, kind of amazes me given the type of clinician that you are. Um, I think, you know, maybe there's some aspects there about what um, keeps mechanics, uh, you know, um, sorry, um, no, but you're right, because I think that 
whether it's engineering or mechanics or nursing, especially critical care nursing, it is about the domino effect and being able to provide a rationale for what you're doing and intervening ah. and understanding pathophysiology and how the body works. And if you understand pathophysiology, then your interventions can justify why it is why it is what you're doing. And, and also understanding pharmacotherapy and mode of action of drugs and what receptors they work on. And if you understand the mode of action of a drug and the receptors it works on, then you understand the adverse reactions that a patient may be susceptible to. And then that gives you insight into what nursing indications you need to undertake prior to administering medication or even post-medication. So I find I like, I love nursing. I'm passionate about it. And I I, I think I appreciate the systematic approach mm. that care nursing offers because I have that, I guess, systematic approach in life to things. Yeah. Um, whether it be, you know, making lists to get through my day or um, approaching things in life by saying, okay, um, this is the situation, this is the outcome I want to achieve, well, what's then going to be the action that I need to take in order mm. to get that, to that outcome? And But I also appreciate the, I'm going to say solidarity in nursing. Mm. And it's different to collegiality that people have in workplaces. The solidarity comes from a shared understanding of having experienced, and I'm going to say trauma, mm because there is an understanding there that can't be explained to family members or friends who aren't nurses. Mm -hmm. And I think from that, you get that, that bond. And I'm not trying to glamorize trauma. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm trying to explain how the, the strength we gain from our peers and the support we gain from our peers is what actually contributes to our own professional growth and the own and, and also the growth of the profession where we're actually not only advocating for um, each other, but by advocating for each other, we're advocating for the profession. And by advocating for the profession, we're, we're ultimately advocating for better outcomes for our patients. Mm. And so when I was looking at research, I initially was looking at effective communication because, again, if you don't have effective communication, it impacts on patient outcomes. But I ended up surprisingly working under Professor uh, Trish Davidson, who's a researcher in heart failure. And at the time, my father had heart failure. And so just sidetrack here, heart failure um, is the number one reason people over the age of 65 will present to emergency. And people who are diagnosed with heart failure, 50% of them will die, unfortunately, within five years. And my, and then, of course, the remaining 50% are dead within 10 years. And my father was able to live with heart failure um, for 17 years, which, if yeah, and if you look at the statistics, this is a guy who had, he went to second grade, dropped out of school, worked as a labourer, worked mm. in the sugarcane fields, worked in mining, you know, heavy, heavy labour, intensive work, um, but still um, managed to, and also, you know, English second language, working class man. So all the social determinant factors were actually against him. Yeah. And I thought, why is it that my father has this outcome 
um, that appears to be more positive than most. And so my research looked at, my PhD was actually focusing on identifying factors that predict the risk of readmission to hospital. Because working in emergency, we, we tend to see there are persons with chronic conditions who frequent emergency. And when I looked at the medical literature, it was predominantly saying things like, oh, it's, you know, when they're tachycardic or hypotensive. And I kept thinking, yeah, but their end results, you know, and their end results of a chronic condition, why are patients actually showing up to hospital? And I, I then, you know, with a nurse's lens, I looked at, it's not just patient factors that contribute to patients coming to hospital. Social it's social factors. It's social support factors. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, support. And that's what my research showed. Yes, that's interesting. That's you really know? interesting, actually. Yeah. And if you have a supportive family member um, mm. or a carer and you have rapport with them, you actually have better outcomes. Mm. And I was able, and so I ended up creating what was a world-first prediction model that predicted yeah. risk for adults with heart failure coming to hospital and that risk model was published in 2015 and it was when you look at risk very quickly um, the accuracy is from zero to one where one is 100% accurate and zero is not accurate at all and mine was 0.8 which is 80% accurate wow. and to this day eight years on it is still the world's leading accurate Oh, it has the greater accuracy than other medical risk models. But that's not about gloating. It's actually saying, hey, everyone in the healthcare team, we need to start looking at social determinant factors yeah. and, and, and recognising that as part of our assessment and discharge planning because we know patients who have um, connection, family, friends, um, a sense of engagement with community will do better than someone who actually lives alone. And, mm. you know, if you think about women who are partnered, they look at their husbands or partner and go, oh, you don't look so good today. I'm going to call an ambulance. Whereas if you're single, you don't have that added support and you mm. end up presenting to emergency later and you end up having a longer length of stay. Yeah, because you're further unwell and you end up having this longer length of stay in hospital. And so the it's not just about keeping persons out of hospital, but actually encouraging um, clinicians to advocate for patients to be self-determining, to have a say in the management of their, their health, because ultimately, and you'd know this having triaged, when patients come, usually say to them, you know, is this normal for you? Mm. Um, and because they're the, the best judge of their body, they know their body and they know what they need to compensate in order to, to survive. And so having the ability to build rapport in that short amount of time is a gift, but it's also a skill. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to learn it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't teach, you don't learn that, unfortunately, in the classroom, which which brings me to academia. And so, you know, I'm the National Deputy Head of School here at, here at Notre Dame, and I'm based in Sydney, and I am an active researcher. And my research looks at what are the factors that predict the risk of readmission to hospital for adults with chronic conditions. But I also look at nursing research in relation yeah. to um, students and 
what is it that we actually can do in our teaching to empower students so that they become safer nurses mm. and be a safe nurse isn't necessarily a nurse who gets the high distinction although that's admirable because it shows they're diligent in their studies you want someone who when it's two o'clock in the morning and there's you know a, a code black or a patient's deteriorating that they will have the ability to just compose themselves take a breath and then systematically assess their patient and then intervene appropriately while escalating care to you know, other members of the team. And, and that in itself is a skill because I remember the first time I had a patient who had a respiratory arrest. You know, I was 20, they arrested in front of me, it was in the coronary care ward. And I really it was weird, Shay, because I think I, I started getting the tachycardia myself. I was becoming a bit tachypneic and I I realized I'm not actually helpful right now. Yeah. Yeah, I need to take a breath, check myself, regroup and just sort it out. And when I when I say sort it out, I mean, you know, intervene actively to have that clear mind. And that's why in, in our nursing students, it's paramount that we teach them how to identify a deteriorating patient, but more importantly, what to do. What do you do about it? Mm. And that in itself is something that our new grads, um, look, we don't always get it right. And I think we, we need to work on it and we work on it collectively in partnership with you know nurses in the clinical area and, and other academics and, of course, nursing students. But recognizing the importance of identifying a deteriorating patient and intervening early because patients and again full circle taking it back to Prof Hillman's research that I worked with in the intensive care unit at Liverpool his research shows that a patient who arrests will have shown signs and symptoms of deterioration 24 hours prior to them arresting oh that's interesting yeah, and it's really telling because many times when you look at the observation chart, you'll see trends. Uh, they're always what we call between the flags. Uh, and it's not just about the patient's vital signs, whether it be, you know, pulse, blood pressure, respiratory rate, oxygen saturations, temperature, GCS being between the flags, but it's also looking at the trend. And a simple yeah. way to explain that is, you know, you're working on the surgical ward, patient comes back from theatre, and their pulse is going 60, 80, 100, it's still between the flags, but it's becoming tachycardic. And in the meantime, their BP is going from 140 to 130 to 110. It's still between the flags, but you've got this relationship that shows possibly active bleeding. And yet if you have a nurse who's just focused on, but it's between the flags, that in itself is concerning. And that's where I think the critical reasoning of nurses is paramount in the education of nurses so that they can actually intervene early yeah and so talk me through you know as someone who is kind of overseeing the education program with the insights that you've just shared you know we know that we've got really high numbers of new grads in our systems at the moment mm -hmm. um and I think everyone who you talk to is so conscious about how we support them to have good experiences. You know, what are you seeing in the kind of learning environment 
Um, what are you hearing about in the clinical environment? And what tips have you got or suggestions that you have for clinicians that are really focused on how to make sure that these graduates are having a good experience, knowing that, you know, the workforce is facing challenges that it hasn't faced in decades um, and that we're asking a lot of these graduate nurses, you know. So I'd love to hear your insights on that. Oh, bless. Look, multiple angles here. First of all, I want to acknowledge that the World Health Organization have recognized that there's going to be a 9 million shortfall come 2030. So it's 2023 and in seven years time or six and a half years, 9 million shortage. So we need to look at how we actually recruit nurses into the profession, yeah. how we retain nurses into the profession. And we know that the largest cohort of nurses is the baby boomer generation, which are nearing retirement age. So how do we ensure that their knowledge that they have is also passed on to peers, colleagues coming into the profession? And what's interesting is that I anecdotally have heard that in nursing now, we've got new grads who are leaving the profession, you know, third, fourth, fifth year out. Mm. We've done some research that talks to that. If we can keep them for the first five years, then generally they'll stay. But that high risk period really is between when they graduate and the first five years. Yeah. And, and thank you for that, because I think it's important. And again, we need to identify why is this so? And being someone who's actively engaged in risk prediction, we need to recognise that it's multifactorial. It's not just the responsibility of the clinician, the individual, it's the responsibility of governance, policies and procedures that are implemented or need to be implemented. And it's also the responsibility of management in relation to culture. Mm -hmm. and, and so when you look at new grads coming into the profession, it's paramount that we manage expectations. And I'm a believer that clinical simulation or you know, practice labs at a university are meant to be difficult. They're meant to challenge students and it's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay to be challenged because that's when the learning happens. Mm -hmm. If you feel reluctant to challenge a student because of how they're going to feel then that student is you're actually doing a detriment to that student mm -hmm. because when they are out on the floor and they're the RN on duty and they're responsible and accountable not only for the patient's health and well-being but also the enrolled nurses and the assistants in nursing managing expectations is paramount and teaching them that leadership isn't a rank mm. it's actually behavior how you behave as a leader is telling because are you then are you going to be the rn who's going to advocate for your team for patient health and well-being or are you going to be self-serving and sometimes it's it's difficult to be an advocate because it means you're the only one advocating for that patient or the only mm. one advocating for your staff. So teaching students the importance of just sitting with the discomfort and, and learning to reflect on that and learning that it's usually based in um, fear of the unknown. Mm. So that brings me to the next strategy. Well, 
let's support students in giving them tools. So if there is a situation that is unfamiliar to them, we've given them tools that they can use to assess a patient. So simple things like primary survey, look, listen, feel, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, exposure, fluid, glucose, you know, very simple look, listen, feel, systematic approach, you document it, you intervene accordingly. And that gives nurses in any discipline on any ward, whether it be in a community setting or in hospital, the skills to actually intervene actively and, and also um, effectively assess their patient mm -hmm. and then hand that over and escalate it to other members of the healthcare team. Teaching that, I believe, is paramount in early years of nursing education, whether it be first year, first semester, so they can then scaffold that learning throughout their education as a nurse yeah and also on their clinical placements because many times they're taught temperature pulse blood pressure but they're task focused yeah they're not taught what does this mean and yeah. in in correlation to what they're seen in isolation and I think as educators we need to do better in how we teach deterioration of the you know patient are you a leader in your workplace passionate about social justice issues. Apply for the Ros Norman Scholarship. The scholarship covers up to $5,000 for promoting activism, developing campaign skills, and public advocacy. Whether you're passionate about climate justice, women's rights, LGBTQIA rights, or trade unionism, the Ros Norman Scholarship will help develop your advocacy and leadership skills. Apply now at newsouthwalesnma.asn.au forward slash Ros Norman Scholarship. Applications close 30th of September. Check website for terms and conditions. There's a researcher, an Australian researcher by the name of Tracy Levitt-Jones, and her research shows that 80% um, of new grads have had and have struggled with identifying a deteriorating patient. And I don't believe the owner should be solely on the on the new grad. It needs to be on the educators. Mm. What have you done to empower nursing students? And I think also having the discussion around um, horizontal violence in nursing, mm. learning to be an advocate for yourself, um, learning the appropriate language to de-escalate those conversations. And I remember as a new grad, you know, crying in the toilet. And, and that was common. You, you'd see your colleagues doing it. And mm, I think we all have those stories. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we, we're talking about it now and we reminisce. And I think that mm. this, this perception that, well, you know, I cried in my day, so they should be crying too. It's no big deal. Uh, for me, that's unacceptable. Mm. You know, because we lived it, we, we now know better and we mm. should do better, as Maya Angelou says. And why put more people through it? Yeah, exactly. And again, <laughs> what's what's underpinning this? And it's usually fear and arrogance and the inability to manage situations. And, and again, that brings me back to the importance of, you know, if you advocate for the profession, then you're actually advocating for, for patients. And when you advocate for patients, they end up having, you know, better outcomes. And... Looking again at the shortfall in nursing, there was a 
there's an upcoming conference happening in Canada. It's the International Council of Nurses Congress 2023, and that's happening in Canada. And they have actually, it's the International Council of Nurses that put together the um, Code of Ethics, which nurses abide by. And they put out a, um, I'm going to say a report, and I was reading about it recently, and it's called um, Recovery to Rebuild. And the report was put together by, well, one of the co-authors is an Australian professor, mm-hmm. um, James Buchanan, I believe. And part of that is, well, the advocate, the advocating for the nursing profession, optimising scope of practice for nurses. Wow. But also when you look at um, the impact on health policy and recognising that health policy does actually influence how nurses undertake their practice. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. James actually spoke at our annual conference last year. Um, and, you know, for those that were there, there was some really interesting um, workforce information about, you know, the projection around the workforce shortages, but also how well positioned Australia is to be filling those gaps, um, given the high quality of, you know, TAFE and university that we have here and that, you know, there's a whole lot more that we could be doing in the policy sort of settings and through political decision making that actually can grow our workforce in a meaningful way, both for Australia and potentially even internationally. Absolutely. And part of that report, surprise, surprise, talked about um, safer staffing levels. Mm. Safer staffing levels for nurses will actually impact safer level of care. It will decrease adverse events and it'll, you know, prevent unnecessary deaths mm-hmm. so when I when I talk about nursing I get somewhat disappointed when I hear people say oh, I'm not political Vasiliki you know Vicks don't talk to me about politics and I think it's not a dirty word and it's actually paramount in us in in Australia nurses are governed by legislation um, it's the legislation that permits us to undertake our practice and our scope of practice and our, you know, professional guidelines, um, professional standards for registered nurses, our code of conduct, and also the International Council of Nurses Code of Ethics. These are guidelining principles that we need to abide by. And if we want to understand the importance of nursing, we, we just need to recognise that nursing is a profession that is trusted by the public. And the reason why we're trusted is because of us as a profession, having high ethics, being transparent, uh, being a profession of integrity. And that's something that I I try to instill in our students because Mm -hmm. the way you behave on a nine-to-five office job, you know, when you go home and you're at the pub, that may not impact your career, but if you're a registered nurse, you need to be mindful that your your conduct, um, your behaviour, does have influence mm-hmm. and if there if nursing was not trusted by the public that would actually have dire consequences uh, for the public in relation to the care that they're receiving and I don't mean that because there'll be reprisal from nurses what I'm saying is that if a person doesn't feel safe they won't disclose information and if they don't disclose information then the person responsible for their care whether it's the nurse won't be able to make informed decisions because they won't have all the information. Mm -hmm. And so building rapport with our patients 
is paramount. Mm -hmm. And we learned to do that effectively, you know, having worked in emergency. And for me, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities that nursing has brought me, you know, the ability to work, study, travel, live overseas, come back, uh, be a nurse who's engaged in clinical work, research, as well as working in academia to ensure that our graduates are, are fierce, are mm -hmm. nurses who are going to advocate, but more importantly, see the nursing profession as a profession where we actually have a seat at the table as critical thinkers, where it's nurses advocating for the nursing profession. And I, I think in order to do that, we need to be informed. Mm, couldn't agree more. And I think it's so critical that nurses are part of the decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they have got a space at the table when it comes to policy setting, et cetera. Um, so having, you know, uh, people who are fierce advocates in positions like yours, I think really do um, have influence and uh, at scale as well, which is really exciting. Um, I want to kind of change gears slightly here. Sure. One of the other hats that you wear is on the Nursing and Midwifery Council, right? Can you talk to our listeners a bit about what that what that means, firstly, mm -hmm. because certainly in my conversations with nurses and midwives, mm -hmm. they don't always fully understand the difference between the council and the board and APRA and the rest of it. So maybe if you could tell us a bit about the council mm -hmm. um, and what you see and what you do, because I also think this is a really interesting area um, and a whole bunch of nurses and midwives, when they start off their career, just have no idea about all of the options available um, to them. And I think this is one of the many things that you can kind of look to um, when, you know, you're a nurse or midwife and all of the variety that's available to us. Oh, thank you. So about three years ago, um, as, uh, let me clarify. So in Australia, we're governed by, we have our registration as nurses and we uh, register with the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Authority, and that's a national registration. And prior to that, it was state run. And then there were some adverse events that were identified where uh, in um, various professions, and I don't believe it was nursing, I believe it was medical, where there was the identification that there were adverse events occurring to patients, but then the clinicians would move state. And so there wasn't that follow-up with intervening in, in their practice. And so the National Registration Scheme was implemented. And so from, from APRA, uh, the public or anyone, or anyone who is the public, so can make a what's called a notification or a complaint to APRA. In every state, though, except New South Wales, those complaints are managed by APRA. Whereas in New South Wales, the complaints are then referred on to what's called the Nursing Midwifery Council. And the Nursing Midwifery Council in New South Wales is made up of 13 members, nurses, midwives and community members who've been, um, I guess, appointed. It's a ministerial appointment by the Minister of Health and we're appointed to this council. And there is one appointment that is for a person engaged in the education of nurses. And that appointment is the position that I hold. So out of all the nursing academics in New South Wales, um, I was, I guess, blessed to have had my knowledge and experience recognised. Yeah. I was appointed to the Nursing Midwifery Council and the Nursing Midwifery Council reviews complaints made by the public 
related to registered nurses or midwives in New South Wales only. Mm -hmm. And we categorise, and again, we use the national law, which is why, again, it's important to know the national law because we're not led by opinion. We're led by the national law in our processes and procedures and also our outcomes. So the three main areas are performance, conduct, or health. And so a notification is made and then it's reviewed at what we call a notification committee where we identify in consultation with the Healthcare Complaints Commission whether it's going to be uh, discontinued and closed or whether there is concern for review and further information to be gathered. And so if we want further information to be gathered, we don't just say, hey, we'd like further information, please. We actually say, as per the national law under Section 164G, so we actually have to quote the legislation, we're requesting further information. And that's actually, and being on council has, has taught me through the experience of what type of complaints or notifications are being made mm. in public. And that then has given me insight as an educator to feed that information back to the other Council of Dean members. So the Council of Deans is made up of deans um, in New South Wales who hold positions as deans in schools of nursing midwifery. We meet once a month, and I also share that position because of my role here at Notre Dame. And I also have the role sitting on the Nursing Midwifery Council. So I'm able to bring the experiences that I've had through council and feed it into the Council of Deans to say, hey, um, it appears that we have had recent notification related to this matter. Mm. We want to consider how we're actually um, educating or upskilling our, our students. And we so have um, a similar thing as well. We obviously have got a position on council as well. Yes. Um, and so we also too, when we start to see trends, start to think about, well, as the industrial or the professional body, what can we do um, to support our members to be proactive um, around preventing notifications, essentially? How can we engage with, you know, the Ministry of Health or aged care providers or whatever it might be? Because you do start to see trends from time to time. Um, and it talks often to you know, systemic changes or systemic issues rather than individuals um, who have, you know, had some conduct issues, for example. Yeah, and that's a really good point you make, Shay, to look at it in context and the fact that you might get someone who comes before council under a Section 150. And a Section 150 is an interview that gets conducted to identify two things. Is this in the public interest? And is this person safe to practice? And so we look at and we ask questions to inquire as to those two, two concepts. Are you safe to practice and is it in the public interest for you to do so? And we don't just look at their practice, but we also ask questions around health and well-being, um, continuing professional development. Are you up to date? What training have you undertaken? Have you had prior concerns raised? in the workplace mm. uh, what's your work history like in order for us to make an informed decision about whether we you know discontinue and close the matter or whether we put conditions in or whether we suspend and, and again suspension is usually it's not usually it's the end line it's yeah. the last thing we want 
Our role on council is to protect the safety of the public. At the same time, it's about informing the person who comes before council about you know, self-care practices or the need for further professional development. Or and, and so let's say we have a practitioner who comes before the board because um, I know um, inappropriately administering schedule eight medications. You know, there, there's a, a ongoing routine where they are unfortunately not abiding by policy and procedure. And if they come before council, then we'll, we'll inquire about continuing professional development. We'll inquire about health and well-being. We'll inquire about um, their, their qualifications, their education, in the hope of identifying, look, what supports can we put in place, such as conditions, mm -hmm. um, in order to protect the public, but also ensure that we are also doing the right thing as per the national law. And so if conditions are implemented, yeah, it's for the safety of the public, but it's also to support that clinician practicing safely. And a condition might be that they need to be indirectly supervised for a period of time until further re review by council with ongoing monthly reports. Now, this may sound uh, laborious, but it's actually there to provide an opportunity for the registered nurse to demonstrate that they are safe and competent mm. with, and then have a peer um, who's been appointed as their indirect supervisor to provide those monthly reports to council. And I, I do enjoy my time on council because I am, I, I feel there is, again, that insight into the complaints that are being made and like you said there are trends um I'll give you an example like during during COVID we had a lot of social media complaints around social media content that persons who identified as nurses were posting mm -hmm. and, and you had nurses saying oh but I was in a private group chat mm -hmm. and, and not recognizing the, the the legal implications of that for their registration mm. and also bringing it back to nurses being a trusted profession mm. if if we're a registered nurse and and we're known on social media for being a registered nurse and we make statements they can be misconstrued or taken out of context and that in itself can be quite harmful so mm. just recognizing the power we yield as nurses and and you know as as Spider-Man, you know, says with great power comes great responsibility. And I, I would love for us to use that power to influence in other ways. Yes, yeah. I agree. And <laughs> no, you're right. And you make a really good point. Instead of having power over, like that horizontal violence, power over, you want to have power with, power <laughs> together, because together we are stronger and knowledge mm. is powerful because you're then able to make an articulate argument based on evidence rather than opinion. Mm. And so you know, again, being a clinician, a researcher or an educator or being on council, it's always what does the law say? What does the policy say? And am I actually abiding by this? Am I being compliant? Mm. Because at the end of the day, if you're not compliant, then you're actually possibly doing harm and doing something that's detrimental. Mm. And I like your comment about, you know, working together building the, the power together I think that talks to what I live my life doing these days so um 
Look, thanks for the chat today, Vix. It's been so lovely. I think we've covered a whole lot of different areas, um, but I hope it inspires some, you know, other nurses and midwives um, because I think you've demonstrated how varied nursing careers can be um, and all of the different kind of highs that you have fingers in. Um, but essentially the influence um, that you have, I think is really remarkable on our profession. And I love how you talk about advocating for our profession. I think that's a great thing to keep front of mind. So thank you so much. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to cover off? Oh, bless. Look, thank you for your time. It, it's been exciting. I have enjoyed my time and sharing my story with you. I think ultimately I want nurses to recognise their own power mm. and, and how powerful an informed voice can be, mm. driven by opinion, but an informed voice together because together we are stronger. And mm. it's important that we are, we recognise that out of in health, we are the largest profession. And it's important for us to be together in solidarity because nurses have direct impact to patient outcomes. So ultimately, the health and well-being of our community is dependent on the nursing profession. Well, that's a lovely end note. I don't think I can top that at all. <laughs> well, thank you, Vix. It's been lovely chatting with you and I hope to see you out and about um, in the world of nursing and midwifery. It's, you know, a big world. We are the largest profession in health, but God, it's a small world and it's lovely when you get to connect with people. So thanks for taking the time um, out of your day to chat with me. I really do appreciate it. Pleasure. Applications are now open for the Edith Cavill Scholarship. The Edith Cavill Scholarship provides funding for nurses and midwives and students to undertake accredited nursing or midwifery studies. Applications close 31st of July. Please see website for terms and conditions. Well, that's it for this episode of The Shift with Shay. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Vix and I look forward to being able to share more stories with you from the world of nursing and midwifery. If you enjoyed this chat, be sure to subscribe to this program wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a review. It helps others to find the show. Remember, if you've got a story to share with us, let us know. Simply email us at theshiftpodcast at nswnma.asn.au. Bye for now. <music>